Thanks for tuning in to the Loser Kid Pinball Podcast. We are on episode 54. I am Josh Roop. With me, my co-captain as always. Scott Larson. And today we have two awesome gentlemen with us. One that has been in the industry for years and seen some pretty awesome stuff. The other one is a man that has been recently thrown into the pinball media spotlight. But before we get to them, Scott, will you please, let's, let's recognize those friends of the podcast before we get going. Okay, so uh, first and foremost, uh, let's talk about uh, flipping out pinball. If you're looking at picking up a new pinball machine or any other uh, accessories with your uh, pinball machine, check out Zach and Nicole at Flipping Out Pinball. They're always a good resource. Uh, we've been able to get a lot of good machines and uh, accessories from them. Uh, also want to talk about um, This Week in Pinball. If you're looking at uh, running down the news uh, for the day, go check out This Week in Pinball uh, uh, Jeff Patterson always has uh, a lot of fun information and uh, summarizes that into the top fives. Lit Frames, if you have that uh, translate that's collecting dust in your corner, please check out Lit Frames and you'll be able to uh, actually put it on the wall and illuminate it. Uh, we love having our alternative translate. I have my alternative uh, Monster Bash translate in there. And speaking of alternative translates, if you're looking for an alternative uh, art package for your classic Williams Valley game, uh, pluck out check out Flyland Design. Uh, I have the alternative backlash in Medieval Madness, and it's a way to uh, spruce up an older machine. Uh, also, check out the Pinball Loft. If you're looking for a blog out there, the Pinball Loft, uh, um, he did a, uh, Tim did a great review of his uh, Guns N' Roses, and he also just upgraded his sound package on his Guns N' Roses Collector's Edition in case you wanted to blow the speakers off your house and your wall. If you're looking at uh, more information and uh, a deeper dive, go and check out um, Pinball Supernova. Pinball Supernova is always a good resource if you want to go and uh, dabble in other things. So, uh, Josh, who, who do we have on the uh, podcast today? We have David Fix, who is over American Pinball right now, who has been killing it with the hires. And with him, we have a man that has not only been on the pinball side, but he's also been on the arcade and the home computer console, we welcome Jack Hager. How are you two doing today? Good. Very good. Great to be here. Yes, good to be with you, Scott and, and Josh. It is great to have you two on. I'm not going to lie, Jack, I didn't really know much about you until American Pinball hired you. And then Pinball News did that wonderful article on you. If, if you want to check it out, go to pinballnews.com. We're going to be referencing a lot through this interview. But... You've got some wonderful stuff here. I want to know, how did you get into all this? Well, it's a pretty uh, eclectic and checkered past. I, I'll, I'll say that much. <laughs> I uh, uh, studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago uh, back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, studying uh, fine art, uh, pretty much classical painting techniques and illustration, and I was preparing myself to be an illustrator in Chicago, which I uh, became uh, a regular contributor while I was still a student. Uh, I was uh, appearing uh, regularly in the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, Chicago Magazine, and eventually uh, Playboy Magazine. And uh, Playboy being the major publisher that it was based in Chicago, I uh, had a great art director named uh, Carrig Pope, who, uh, you know, knew that I was doing freelance jobs here and there. And he said, uh, he pulled me aside and said, Jack, there is a pinball company in uh, Chicago on the Northwest side 
looking to get into this new thing called video games. That's how long this was, long ago this was. And he said, they're looking uh, for an artist to help out. And he said, I think uh, this might be a good regular gig for you. And that's when I had my first interview with Williams Electronics on the northwest side of the city. Uh, that would have been around 1980. And I brought in my portfolio of commercial illustration or editorial illustration and fantasy paintings and surrealist work. And um, but I was always very much focused in classical training and recognizable, uh, you know, not not abstract painting. And uh, the folks at uh, Williams Electronics really appreciated my subject matter, my approach. And I met with Ken Fedesna and another uh great guy named John Newcomer who were working on some new things at that time. Uh, Williams had just uh, had huge successes with Defender and Stargate from Eugene Jarvis and uh, we're, work we're in the process of working on Joust. So that's when I was brought in and I was asked to help out on Joust a little bit and uh, I was put in the uh, essentially the pinball art department at that time. So there was a guy named Connie Mitchell uh, who did a lot of uh, Williams back glasses from back in the day and, and games. Uh, Seamus McLaughlin was another artist from that period. And I got to work with uh, the, the early artists at Williams and uh, get a sense of uh, what pinball design and illustration was all about. Uh, at that time, I also ran into a larger than life personality. Uh, you may have heard of him, Python Angelo. Uh, was it was it Williams at that time and uh, Python and I hit it off uh, right away because we both had uh, traditional fine art backgrounds and I came from a you know a, a basic Midwestern background and Python had this exotic uh, Romanian uh, life story behind him and uh, so uh, we kind of contrasted, but uh, we're very competitive with each other. So that's basically how I set my foot in Williams Electronics uh, in the early uh, in the early 80s. So uh, getting back to that, uh, that was actually an interesting overlap era where they they had and Atari tried to do these things too, where they tried to um, kind of retheme some of the games. Uh, I you mentioned Joust, I mean they came out yes. with a Joust pinball machine. There's, Correct. there's not too many of them, uh, but uh, it was one of the rare ones that actually didn't have a back class, but it was it was almost the you know, you're competing uh, with uh, someone across. And it, it was it was, yeah, a it was incredible. It, it, it's a fascinating game. Um, there's actually mm -hmm. one locally in Utah that uh, in someone's private collection that I want to go and check out. And uh, mm -hmm. I was planning on going out there until the uh, Corona hit. So I'm waiting for things to die down so I can go out there. But were you involved in any of these overlaps? I, mean, um, I believe there was a Defender uh, pinball machine, too. Yes. It was uh, an ambiguous time for me a little bit because clearly I was brought in to help uh, stimulate uh, building an internal uh, dedicated video design team. But I had uh, such a formal uh, illustration background that it really did lend itself to pinball, but I had to kind of be pulled away from getting too involved with them uh, at that time uh, because I, we really needed to, to focus on making new video games. So I didn't get a chance to work on either of those, but uh, yeah, the head-to-head the head -to -head, uh, joust was an amazing table. Um, 
I wish I could tell you if that was Barry Ausler or not. I, I forget who might, may have been the designer on that. Piece. I believe you're right. It is Barry Ausler that did that yeah. piece. Um, that's usually, um, I don't know if you guys know Phoebe who comes to, uh, Phoebe Smith who comes to um, Expo, but that is one of the pins she usually brings. And there's also one that's very rare called Varcon, which um, I don't know if you remember that at all, Jack. Uh, Varcon was a pretty cool game around that same time. There's a Varcon actually on location out here. It's uh, isn't it the one that's uh, yep. that's slightly more vertical? Yeah, it's uh, there. There's a an arcade out here. It's uh, it's Flynn's Retrocade, and so you know it's uh, obviously themed with the Tron. And in the back, they have about six machines. Um, the the challenge with that location, as all location is maintenance on these machines because uh, electronics you you flip the switch and it turns on and you basically have to wipe it down occasionally but it pretty much functions exactly how it's intended as it comes out of the factory um that that is the main challenge with pinball is that it's kind of a labor intensive hobby in that if you have a machine on site you have to have someone who knows what they're doing to maintain this because uh, you basically have this uh, violent ball that's uh, smashing around. It's a steel ball, and it's hitting all sorts of plastic things. And if you don't keep that maintained, it's it can be very difficult on location. Oh, I, I know, Scott. Um, I have. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a place in Buffalo, New York, called Pocketeer Billiards. Uh, it's a dream of mine and, and my partner. And we have 80 pinball machines on the floor. We've hosted some Papa events and so forth, but uh, it's just me and him you know, wrenching on these machines and we have a few guys who kind of help wipe them down every once in a while, but go ahead, Jack. I had a question for you for a second. I was going to ask you, uh, you name, you said a name there that I haven't heard in a long time and there's a lot, not a lot talked about Seamus McLaughlin. Um, tell us a little, if you can, a little bit about Seamus because he did uh, Pharaoh's back glass, if I'm not mistaken, and a bunch of Pharaoh art, Pharaoh pinball. That sounds familiar. Uh, I know, uh, Seamus uh, uh, enjoyed uh, socializing with Python a lot when I showed up, and they were good friends. And uh, Seamus was uh, a longtime talented artist in the pinball department. Uh, I, I eventually left Williams uh, and followed uh, some fellow employees there to do a, a startup in California. So I, I can't tell you uh, when Seamus departed, but... Uh, when I did come back, he wasn't part of uh, the pinball team yeah. anymore. So I don't have uh, a lot to share, but okay. uh, he was one of the the great, uh, you know, hand-drawn, ruby lift, um, cutting, uh, you know, pinball artists of that era. And, and it's in, in, interesting yeah, is I, that the ferrobat back glass, you can do a lot of research on it, but there's a lot of secret stuff hidden in that glass that was quite interesting. Um but what was your first game at Williams, Jack? Well, my uh, again, my f- first game that I was involved in was Joust, uh, working with John Newcomer and uh, helping out on that. Uh, Connie Mitchell, I think, was doing the cabinet exterior art. But there was an existing con- uh, concept floating around called Juggernaut. And it was the concept, I believe, uh, started with John Newcomer. And it was about uh, some object in space being built floating around and that you had to prevent it from being built or it would come and attack you. And I was uh, given the task of 
uh, designing the graphics around this, which kind of expanded uh, the game concept. Uh, the game eventually developed into what I uh, titled uh, as a Sinistar. So some people are familiar with the game Sinistar. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, uh, we had 16 color, a whole, uh, you know, a whole amount of 16 colors to work with. And uh, even then, I was doing things that really hadn't been done up to that point where a lot of, uh, you know, very primitive games up to that point were solid color characters. And I chose to make a gradient palette. That was a big deal at the time. Uh, So I could make 3D appearing boulders. I could make a 3D appearing metallic object, which was the Sinistar. And I also animated the face. So I animated jaw, the, the eyebrow, the eyes, so on and so forth. And the team realized, well, we could animate speech uh, with this character. So that's how Sinistar became one of the biggest run, uh, first. Coward, run, <laughs> Right, right. Video games with speech calls. And, you know, it was a pretty much a one-trick pony. The, you know, the game is you're, you know, you're defending yourself against this thing being built and you're trying to build it up. But uh, a lot of people you know, still, you know, tell me to this day that it really gave them chills as young kids playing, you know, they, they thought it was a pretty um, ominous character. And, and uh, so uh, I feel like I, I did my job with uh, Sinistar. So after Sinistar, you kind of left Williams to go on to do a computers, if I remember correctly. Uh, like I said, once again, we're rever- referencing everything in the pinballnews.com article. And you got to work with Andy War. You got to work with Andy Warhol there. How was that? And how was working with him? Correct. So, uh, so I had uh, worked uh, at uh, Williams Electronics, I believe, uh, from 1981 to 1982. Um, I was happy working there, but I had there were two people that left for Silicon Valley, uh, namely Sam Dicker and uh, R.J. Michael. Uh, who became hugely successful in uh, Silicon Valley um, these days. Uh, But they uh, created a startup company uh, focused on building the uh, Amiga computer. And for those that are familiar with the Amiga computer, uh, it was eventually uh, purchased and sold by Commodore computers. And I was... uh, I was invited by RJ and Sam to come out as the art director of Amiga. And again, we were just a startup. And uh, I think that the uh, code name at that time was High Toro. And uh, we were quietly making this amazing computer that outdid a lot of what was what Apple was creating at, at that time. Uh, Steve Jobs even came in and to take a look at uh, the Amiga and early development, and he was blown away and was very interested in it. Um, as the, uh, as the project reached its fruition and we had an actual computer and Commodore bought us, they were, uh, interested in doing a, a major launch for the computer. And that's, uh, where, uh, marketing came to me and said, you know, are there any people that you feel would be good, uh, visual artists to be, uh, representatives for the Amiga? And we had been doing we had been doing work with digitizing uh, that was pretty interesting at the time. And everything that we created reminded me very much of the silkscreen work that Andy Warhol was doing. And I just commented, I said, "Well, boy, Andy Warhol would be something," but I didn't expect it 
to happen. Um, and next thing I know, I was flown out to New York to meet with Andy and some of his people at the Seagram's building in New York. And I gave him a demo of the Amiga and that and a substantial amount of cash uh, encouraged him <laughs> to become involved uh, as a representative for Amiga, which, of course, every artist, you know, is looking uh, for support. And um, but it became more than that. So. Uh, I was flown out later to spend time with him to teach him how the Amiga works, and I set up shop in his, uh, what was called the factory, his studio, and I would spend a couple hours every day with Andy, uh, just he and I working on the Amiga, and, uh, you know, just showing him ins and outs and just letting him play with it. Um, an interesting side story to all this, about mm, 10 years ago or whatever it was, I think, uh, I know Time Magazine had a big story. Uh, someone from Carnegie Mellon University um, made a big uh, production that they had found Andy Warhol's old Amiga computer. And it had a disc with all of these uh, unseen, previously unseen images on, on the disc. And uh, they published it and it became a worldwide article. And Every image on that disc, um, uh, technically, I sat next to Andy as he created them. Uh, there was a Campbell soup can, there was a banana, there was a self-portrait, and he even signed each one with the mouse. And, and uh, so it was kind of uh, just nice seeing that uncovered, and, and that became a bit of uh, history after the fact. Um, the, the video that appears here and there on the Internet shows the actual launch at Lincoln Center. And uh, Debbie Harry from Blondie was the model that he chose to use, who was just wonderful. She was terrific to work with, too. And uh, uh, the uh, interview that I conducted with him was largely unscripted. And uh, one thing that I realized in getting to work with Andy and be comfortable with him is that we would have extensive long running conversations and it was, you know, no problem. When he was in public, Andy would speak in uh, pretty much monosyllabic responses. So you'd say, Andy, this is the most amazing thing. What do you think? And he'd go, Oh, it's great. Then that's it. So, so as part of this launch, I had to kind of pull things out of him, and that's why I was kind of, hamming it up a little bit or trying to get responses from him, which we did. And the crowd uh, responded a little bit and we made it a fun uh, experience. And uh, that's, that's the story behind the, the Andy Warhol video uh, that appears on uh, YouTube. So how did you get, uh, you start in Chicago, you get, um, you get your, your toes wet and then you disappear. How did you get roped back into um, coming back? Uh, Amiga got bought out, and uh, Commodore uh, paid all the employees off, with the exception of a few of the lead chip designers and so on. And I was doing freelance work for Apple. Uh, even Lucas Arts was getting into gaming, and I would and I would drive up to. Uh, Skywalker Ranch and do a little work there. And in that period, I got a call from Ken Fidesna, who was the, the manager of uh, Williams Electronics at the time. 
and he mentioned that Eugene Jarvis was at Stanford University, and, and he was considering moving back to Chicago from Stanford. And I have, you know, kept in touch with Ken, and he said, you know, if you'd be interested, we'd, you know, love to have you back with Eugene to get uh, the video department kickstarted again. Uh, there had been a, a slump in arcade and video arcade uh, coin-op sales at that time, and there was interest in, you know, rejuvenating uh, the uh, production line, and let's see what we could get going. So, uh, you know, I took the opportunity, and um, I love California, but, uh, you know, I'm a Midwestern boy, and, and it, uh, it seemed like an, an interesting opportunity. So uh, I went with it, and that's what brought me back to uh, William, and it was still just Williams again at that point, so, and that would have been around 1985 or so. So, and this is, uh, you, you referenced the, uh, the actually ar the arcade collapse in 1983, which yeah. was pretty infamous. A lot Correct. of businesses went under during that. Yes. Um, and so when you brought back in, were you, uh, designed to, to just do the arcade stuff? Cause uh, you have a few concept arts, uh, projects in your portfolio, at least in the pinball news thing or like pirate Island. Correct and uh hey bartender so you have all these things and they look like they're are uh, they're pinball machines they are yes and uh so uh, again i was brought back to work with eugene on you know reinventing the video production and, and video concepts and eugene had a concept at that time uh which would eventually become narc uh, the first uh fully digitized uh action game that we did but the uh the hardware and the software wasn't written uh, fully at that time. So that was all in the works. And uh, rather than uh, just sit on my hands uh, all that time, I, I contributed to Eugene's concept and I came up with some other video game concepts. Uh, but I would find my way up to the pinball department again and again, because it, my, in my heart, I'm an illustrator and, and a visual communicator. And, uh, I found that uh, there were some opportunities to create concepts for the pinball department. Uh, Steve Kordick was still at Williams at that time, and he had uh, a, a wide-body Whitewood. Uh, and uh, the unique thing about this Whitewood is that it had 13 lights um, on the, on the playfield. And so whatever title you had to come up with had to incorporate 13 letters. It was my limit. So, that, so that's what I was starting with. Nothing more than that. And I just thought about it and I thought, well, and I just thought, of, well, what could I say in 13 letters? And uh, one of the ones I was thinking, you know, different themes and I thought, oh, Pirate Island. If you use a space in between, uh, that would be 13 letters. So that's where I started sketching and, and I came up with Pirate Island and I thought this would be a nice universal theme and it has a lot of potential and uh, could really be graphically interesting. So that's where that uh, sketch came from. Uh, and uh, people seemed to like it and they were kind of surprised that I was that into it. Again, I was supposed to come back and just focus on video, but uh, it really got me enthused about um, doing something and helping them out. Uh, the sales department commented at the same time, they said, well, G-Jack, this Pirate Island thing is great, um, but we also have 
uh, input from street locations and bars and everything. Uh, do you think you could come up with a theme that's more adult or that would be well suited for a bar street location? And again, 13 letters. It was like an episode of um, uh, Wheel of Fortune, you know. So, so I came up with Hey Bartender, 13 letters, uh, and uh, came up with that concept. Uh, and then there was an additional uh, feature that I just thought about, you know, having a, a classic bubble machine uh, transparent uh, mug of beer on the top with a bubble machine, and I could see it illuminated from the bottom even better. And the, so you'd have this bubbling uh, stein of beer on the back box. I thought that would be a great idea. So that was uh, that concept. So, so Jack, where were you when we did Oktoberfest? That would have been perfect, you well, know? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I, I, I thought I actually saw that and I thought, well, this must obviously be where Oktoberfest came from. I do. I do have to I do have to say something. And I don't know if you want this on the record. Go or off for the it. Record. Uh, a friend invited me, uh, not from American Pinball, invited me to an American Pinball open house after the fact. So this is when uh, Oktoberfest was in production. And I may have met with uh, one of the. Uh, creative members of the staff, uh, and I did bring drawings with because I didn't know if there was uh, an opportunity with American Pinball, or I just wanted you know let them know. And I did bring uh, my sketches with, and specifically I, I uh, brought out the uh, the Stein of Beer, and I said, you know, this never got used, but it's not a bad idea for Oktoberfest. So uh, after the fact, I did my best. I tried. Um, but you guys were already, American Pinball was already in production at that point. And, and, but, and to, to go with that story a little bit longer, uh, not to drag it out, but uh, that was Josh Krugler you met with because. How do you know that? Because Josh told me. So I'm talking to Josh. <laughs> when, you know, I'm like, Josh, I'm, we're, we're looking at bringing Jack on. He goes, Jack did this great game called Hey Bartender. And he put a beer oh. mug on the top. He showed me pictures and oh, so nice. forth. Oh, nice. That's and, nice. uh, you know, the next thing, you know, we were just like, you know, I trust me, I trust, I talked to all the guys in the department on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, Jack came across as being the guy that we needed. So, you know, that's oh, kind of why we pulled you. That's great. So Jack, as I was going through this pinball news article, I noticed that there was a Williams world tour, which confused me a little bit because there's, I've never seen this pinball machine before, but there's an Alvin G world tour. Where did this come from and, and how did this come to be? Sure. So that would, that was still in the same, uh, uh, gestation period for the new video, uh, hardware and software at Williams. And, uh, I was asked to help out a designer, uh, a young designer at uh, Williams at the time who had a, a concept for a traveling game. And that was about it. It was like, Jack, I've got an idea for going from one town to another. Do you have any concepts or uh, graphic ideas, how that might uh, be made interesting and entertaining? So I worked on sketches and concepts, and that's where I came up with the idea that uh, what what is better uh, than to travel, but to be paid to travel and have throngs of uh, fans waiting for you at every location, you know, like a rock star. So I came up with the world tour idea of a, of a traveling musician, and it wasn't meant to be licensed or anything, just a generic traveling musician, and to clearly show on the back glass that 
here he had started in Los Angeles and then uh, landed in uh, Japan and then in uh, Russia. And that's sort of depicted on the back glass sketch that I created with three different women in three different costumes. And then you clearly see the stylized earth below him with, uh, you know, the Colosseum in Rome and, and uh, Big Ben in London, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that uh, I was pretty excited about the drawing. And then I took the drawing to the next step and actually made uh, 150% scale, a very large painting that I started on, never completed. Uh, but I did a painting, an acrylic painting of the World Tour back glass. And uh, people loved it. Uh, I also suggest that as part of the game that, uh, you know, CDs were, weren't brand new at the time, but they were really at their heyday. So I thought, why don't we have a, a compact disc on the play field that spins? And that could be like a spinning ramp or something. So that's where the spinning ramp for a world tour came from. So, uh, so to tie this in, Jack and I have had a conversation yes. just recently. Um, actually, it's kind of funny how this all lends itself together. Uh, that designer was under contract with Williams and Williams kind of passed on the design because he was only on a contract. He then took the artwork and the design and went to Elvin G. And basically that's how the game went from Williams to Elvin G and the artist concept later got picked up. You know, they love the idea. So they did it their own version uh, an artist by the name of Dan Hughes, uh, who Jack and I had a nice conversation with a couple uh, days ago. So, you know, it's just kind of funny to be able to be in that circle still with these guys and talking to people. And uh, Dan was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing, you know, the the your artwork at this. And uh, we, we brought in a couple other names. And it was kind of amazing how this, this little community was all together and how the design that Jack had worked on this you know, from the CD turned into a record onto Al's grand, uh, what is it? Alvin G's garage, garage band tour. So, you know, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Al's garage band goes on a world there go. tour. Thank yeah. You. yeah. So if you that, see that my is, original, mouthful. if you see my original sketch, that was the intention of the original backlash and the, and the vibe and so on and so forth. It's it's really that's a pretty amazing um, like that would be a fun art thing to have in the game room actually. Yeah, like, uh, that that's a really fantastic uh, backlash there. I, the other ones it, it's different. It, the other one's a cartoony one, um, and uh, this one's uh, just kind of a, a fine a fine art interpretation. But it's that really is fantastic. I'm really impressed by that. Thank you, thank you. And you got to remember during that time frame, you you know a lot of. Um, I mean, I love Jack's back class too. And I'm going to tell you, Dan is a really good artist and he probably could have done something very close, but you got to remember at that time, a lot of the companies were, yes, it was very close market, but they probably got a lot of heat from uh, Williams if they were using the same back class that Jack had already done. So they had to be a little bit of a change, a little bit more done into the cartoon. And Listen, Elvin G, he was kind of, uh, Elvin was a great guy, but he always loved the Archie look. So, you know, the Archie comic look. So, Right. And you can definitely see that. You can definitely see that style. And, it, well, it's the, I, I would argue it's the same thing as uh, Star Wars pinball. So that there's two different versions of the Star Wars pinball. There's the comic version and there's the, 
the photorealistic uh, painting version. Sure. And uh, I actually pref- like I understand why people like the comic version, but I, I like the the more realistic interpretation of it. But uh, that's the beautiful part of it is there is that space for everybody. Sure. And, uh, you know, to to talk about the conclusion on that on our end, it, because I was uh, I became the art director at Williams Valley Midway. Uh, there was uh, some sort of legal encounter between Williams and Alvin G when they found out they were producing a game based on World Tour, and I, I can't go into that any further. But it, but it was I, I had no idea that uh, that the concept had left the building. Um, now I know it it seems as though um, I kept throwing stuff at the wall and nothing <laughs> happened. But it was, but it was fine, and there, I'm not even listing every concept that I was working on at the time. There were redemption type games I was designing. There were alternative video game concepts, but again, the uh, hardware and the software was being developed, and Eugene Jarvis and I were starting to experiment with uh, the video digitizing process, lighting, uh, the fact that if you wanted to have a a repeatable cycle of somebody walking or running that would uh, require a, a treadmill solution in front of the camera. Uh, so we uh, we we figured out uh, all of the requirements that eventually would lead to other game development, uh, to significant game development at Williams Valley Midway, uh, as in uh, Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam, etc. Uh, so we we were really building the processes and the procedures for uh, the other teams to uh, develop in. Yeah, that's actually a pretty. Uh, I, everybody who is in my age demographic, they all pumped in uh, tons of quarters into uh, Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam, NFL Blitz, all of those games because it was different. And really, Mortal Kombat was. It seemed that that was uh, chasing Street Fighter Two. Yeah. So Street Fighter 2 came out. It was very cartoony. It felt very much like a Sega Genesis game, I would say. Yeah. Uh, with better graphics. And then when Mortal Kombat came out, I looked at that and I thought, huh, that's really interesting. They found a way of, of animating really well. I actually didn't even know until recently those were pictures and you found a way of animating those together. Absolutely. And actually, uh, to uh, help support a, a good friend's uh, project, uh, there's an excellent documentary that's out now. It's available on Netflix, if I can plug it, uh, called Insert Coin. And it's by a, uh, a former Midway uh, uh, designer and incredible artist named Josh Sway. And it uh, hit all the uh, the film festivals at uh, uh, South by Southwest and so on and so forth. So now it's available on Netflix, uh Prime, I think, in the paid video in the paid documentaries section called Insert Coin, and it deals in great detail on the the rise and fall of Midway Games and the process, and, and it focuses a lot on on the development of Mortal Kombat. So, for anybody interested in the inside workings of Mortal Kombat, that's it's a very good documentary that covers uh, that history. Does it cover Steve Ritchie being the voice? It may mention him. I don't. You know, quite honestly, um, I was interviewed for it. I still haven't seen the whole thing myself. So, but I hear it. But I hear it turned out great. So, 
Um, but yeah, Steve, that was that was again uh, one of the side issues of, of Williams Valley Midway is we all pitched in on everything, and I think that kind of uh, reinforces what we're talking about here. There was a lot of cross pollinization. So you'd have people from pinball going, hey, can you do speech for my game? And people from video asking for uh, cabinet art support, this and that, from the pinball side. So uh, we did. A, there was a lot of cross-fertilization that took place. Now, Jack, you brought up something to me the other day. You did some voices. So can you, lot, can, yeah, can, we hear, can you tell us some of the voices you did? Oh, boy. Well, now a lot of them were, were computer computer aided and synthesized. Um, probably most uh, the greatest number of voices in one game I worked on was a game I designed called Carnival, and it was a video game, and it was an evil carnival basically, and it had a great backstory, and uh, there's a uh, a nice intro to it with sort of a uh, Vincent Price sort of uh, reading of a, of a local legend that uh, tells you about the history of Carnival and when it returns in this small Iowa town. And that was my voice. Um, and then there was a, uh, uh, a disembodied skull that you uh, would meet throughout the game named Umlaut. And Umlaut is a character in uh, Germanic uh, alphabet. Um, but I also like the sound of sound of it. And the, the leader of Carnival, um, I sort of pictured being from Luxembourg. He was uh, Ludwig, Dr. Dr. Ludwig von Tokentaker. And his name is literally <laughs> what it sounds like. We, we, we had the game on test. And, and one of the guys said, boy, the game's really doing well. And I said, yeah, it's really taking tokens. And he said, yeah, it's a real token taker. And I go, that's it. That's his name. There you go. And that's where we came up with. It's a shooter. It's it's like a yes. uh, it's like an area area fifty one yeah. type game. Yeah, but you know, I guess the best way to describe it is kind of Tim Burton esque. You know, very fantasy, uh, and uh, so um, Ludwig von Tokentaker might be uh, welcome aboard. From this room, I have observed your every move, but you do not obey. Prepare to die. And that was Ludwig von Tokentaker. And then Umlaut the skull would be, um, welcome to the haunted house. Meet a ghoul who lost her head. If you'd like to stay and join us, you're always welcome, alive or dead. <laughs> but it would be pitched way up. Um, so I would read these silly poems. We had poems for the start of every wave, um, uh, the freak show, the big top tent, and so on. It's where, where Umlaut would read these things, so... Uh, guilty is charged. I am umlaut. Well, that just tells that just tells me I'm going to have to use you for some voices for our games. <laughs> I just want to rewind for a second because I noticed here on your resume that you've got Elvira and the Party Monsters on here. So how did you get involved with that? After uh, Williams bought Midway, we uh, we uh, brought on several incredible people. Uh, uh, two of them were uh, Greg Freres and Dennis Nordman, and they were working on um, uh, Dr. Dude and uh, Elvira and the Party Monsters was a game they were developing. And uh, they realized I also had a background in sculpture, and I designed uh, 
puppets for puppet theaters and things like that. So they said, uh, uh, they said, Jack, we have this tunnel ramp thing we would like to do. Do you think you could do a sketch and a sculpt for it? And uh, the, the concept was a skull cave, sort of a skull cave entrance. So I worked with Greg and Dennis on that and uh, sculpted it out of plastilina clay and we casted it and uh, put eyes in it and uh, that's the, uh, the skull cave ramp on Elvira and the Party Monsters on the upper left side. Um, an interesting detail to that is uh, it has a green uh, lights for the eyes and originally almost by default I said well it should have red bulbs for the eyes and uh, that was not allowed due to uh, concerns of um, uh, people at, uh, in more conservative areas of the country who might uh, feel that it was a satan. It meant oh, devil sat worship, yeah, yeah. A satanic object. So we had to change it to green. So that's yeah. just a fun I, fact. I remember we couldn't uh, we we couldn't play uh, Dungeons and Dragons in the eighties because mm -hmm. apparently that all left to, that led to devil worship. Yeah, um, yeah. So let me get this right: it was wrong for kids to see the red eyes, but it was all right for Elvira's bosom to say hello to the kids. <laughs> no, no, wait yeah. a minute! Wait, wait. Let me touch something on that. Hold on one thing. You know, yeah. not so fast. Not so fast. We're, we're okay with the knockers, but not no, okay no, no, no. Actually, do you know that Elvira and the Potty Monsters was the first game to come with a panel, a mat panel yep. that could fit on yes. the inside of the translator back glass so you didn't see the 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 uh knockers as it were uh it was the first one yeah. to do that so here's here's a fun fact for for you youngsters out there if you develop a game like elvira and it requires a modesty panel the quickest and most efficient solution is you go to uh, a hobby lobby or a store like that and purchase a pack of do paper doilies. And they're sort of lace doilies. And you cut it into a little triangle. And that literally is how you make an Elvira modesty <laughs> panel. <laughs> and it works so, like so a la chart. Lace is OK. Lace is OK, apparently, yeah. OK, so I, I do want to get back to, uh, I th this, is, this has been a fascinating uh, travel through all, all the entertainment uh, uh, game industry thing but i, I want to bring back so i you have a cut you brought back to pinball um you had involvement in full throttle and ultimate spider-man and and stern star wars so i want to talk about that but i also want to transition the reason why we have you on is because you are at american pinball and so we want to talk about american pinball and what you're doing at american pinball and the next five games you're going to release. So uh, go ahead. Next five. Wow. Well, three would do. Three would do. We, we're not even going to tell you the next three. But anyway, and we're already working on those. But anyway, go ahead, Jack. Uh, well, I uh, was uh, contacted recently by uh, David, uh, s sort of out of the blue. I had been talking to Greg Freris, and uh, I was doing uh, – contract work and consulting work for Stern whenever they needed it. Uh, there were uh, concepts that I worked on for several games and uh, Greg and George Gomez would contact me and say, Hey Jack, could you give us, uh, you know, 10 flavors of this cabinet and how you different approaches. And uh, I would do that. And in some cases uh, I would be asked to continue and do final artwork on the side or some, or some other times it would be, the concepts would be handed off for other artists, which was fine. 
so I think there may have uh, been uh, some communication there. David can <laughs> tell you how that happened, but well, but I got a call from David, and it was re it was just a real surprise and a real honor to uh, to talk to David and just to discuss uh, American pinball and uh, their needs and uh, you know how I might be able to help out with my background. Well, it was kind of funny. Is I'll give you a quick brief thing: is uh, when we joined American Pinball. Uh, before I brought Dennis in, one of the biggest concerns from you know a bunch of the guys was that we needed an art director. Uh, we've never had one. We've had artists where they gave us our concept, but we never had an art director. Um, and when I brought Dennis on, we started talking about people. And uh, believe it or not, Dennis said to me one day, he says, I need a mechanical engineer. And I says, okay, we'll get you one. He says, her name was uh, Zofia Bill. Can you find her? Now, Zofia Bill, I'm like, okay, how am I going to find this woman? And it literally was, uh, thank goodness I had a little background with the U.S. government at one point where I was able to find people. It took me about an hour. I had her on the phone. She was excited to come uh, join American Pinball. You can hear her podcast on the super awesome pinball show with Chris and Christian. But that it was like, you know, you know, Dennis was sitting there and saying, okay, now we need an artist. And he goes, uh, there was this guy by the name of uh, Jack. Uh, and he, he gives me this information. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm like, I told Dennis, you give me somebody and I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call these people. And listen, I've been turning over rocks and f saying, hey, you want to come work for American Pinball? And uh, Jack was like floored, honored. And uh, I mean, it just took a little time. And before you know it, he was coming in as our new art director. So Jack, if you want to talk a little bit about what your role is as the art director, go ahead. But remember, don't tell them game three, <laughs> I mean, game four, game five and game six. We got to keep those kind of secret. Okay. Okay. We won't tell the public, but you're more than welcome to tell us afterwards. Wink, wink. <laughs> you You'll have to wait like everyone else. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, initially, it's been uh, uh, surveying uh, recent projects, and uh, like any uh, game in production, there are some revisions that need to take place, and uh, I've been uh, looking at that and uh, helping out with that immediately. Uh, we have some promotional concepts that I've been involved in that are, that are really terrific promotional concepts. So I'll be supporting uh, the marketing efforts as well. Um, and my role also extends to the parent company, which is Aimtron Corporation. Uh, so from time to time, uh, I will be uh, providing them with art direction and graphic design support, uh, working with promotional, promotional materials that uh, promote and uh, inform people on their uh, capabilities as a uh, PCB corp uh, company and manufacturer. So it's, so it's a great opportunity uh, to uh, help out pinball, the entertainment industry, as well as uh, development that supports the medical industry, uh, military, uh, government, and, uh, and uh, consumer uh, computer products. So, um, I'm just uh, very happy to be here, and uh, they're going to keep me busy. I've, I have a feeling. Oh, yeah. We, we have plenty of projects. Okay. So so lead me through this as an art director. Like, you are, uh, you're basically overseeing, and I would assume it's very similar to, like, a, a project director or anything like that, where 
you uh, obviously have multiple games at various stages of development. Mm -hmm. And so you now are the one who is saying, okay, we're, we're going to be guiding for this look. Yes. We, we need to look for these artists. We need to figure out how we want to steer the theme and how we want to find the right audience and find the right uh, description. So tell me how involved you will be in actually producing the art yourself for it? Or are you going to be more of a supervisory role where you're guiding the, the vision, so to speak? Well, the way, the way you uh, stated it, Scott, is very true. Uh, where a, uh, let's say an engineer has a concept for a game, uh, I will be involved in, uh, heavily involved in working on brainstorming, on refining that concept and trying to, uh, find the most entertaining aspects of, of the idea and, and ways that we can exploit those in a game. Um, if I'm not personally involved creating the artwork, then yes, I'm, we are going to seek uh, uh, the best artist, the most appropriate artist for the concept uh, that can really support the theme and, and uh, make for a nice cohesive experience. And then along the way, it's my job to, uh, shepherd that person in that um, I'm looking to encourage, encourage and champion their work. So it, people may do things very differently than I uh, do. They may have a different uh, style or manner of, of uh, creating art, but my job is to really uh, uh, champion them and uh, celebrate their work in the game. So I try and keep my style out of it, but my uh, attitude is uh, how do we efficiently make this happen? Uh, are we communicating uh, the theme of the game? Uh, and is it um, working to make the best product and the most desirable product, most importantly, uh, for the customer? So everything that we do, um, I, I hope that it inspires uh, desire and uh, entertainment and, and people appreciate the product in the end. And I'm just going to touch on this, too, because Jack brings a very unique perspective. Not only has he done pinball art and has a great artist flair of stuff and done stuff, but he's also been in the backgrounds with Williams with the video games. And you know now that the pinball machines are heavily video styled with the back uh, uh, display. I mean, we're not talking about dot matrix. We're talking about high def. So, you know, Jack and I have had discussions already about characters, how to bring them into animation, how to bring these uh, creations and give it more dimension, even with a little of the flair of the Williams style or even some green screen stuff that we can bring into the pinball realm to give it that all around effect, you know, because I'm looking at, you know, back classes and, you know, you, you look at, the, you know, the different games that have been made and it's like, wow, this is like, you know, the days of just a, the score display is gone. And we're now talking about almost a video game inside of a pinball machine, which is already heavily, you know, uh, illustrated as in the first place. So bringing Jack to have that vision to be able to work with not just 
video animators, but also with the artists who's coming together with this to make sure that everybody's on board to communicate that. It was a very important step for me. And I think it was a very important step for American Pinball at the same time. Now, in the in the design process, I mean, your your last machine that you released was uh, Hot Wheels. Yes. And uh, I actually know two people who have Hot Wheels. Oh. And I, uh, okay, I, I'm the first to admit I was a little puzzled by the theme. Because it, it, it's 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 a little different than what you typically see. You typically see the dad rock bands, or you see the, you know, the the theater assets, or something like that. And when Hot Wheels came out, I actually had two friends who's like, "Yeah, I bought it," and they they gave surprise like when I say surprisingly good reviews, I didn't know what to expect. Mm. And so when they reviewed it, they said, "Yeah, it's a blast. It's actually a lot of fun to to play." So. That was about a, a year ago, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a year yeah. in March. So next month. And let yeah. me let me talk so, to you on that real quick, because, you know, Houdini came out and, you know, I've made some other podcasts and I talk about Houdini. Houdini is really an advanced players game. OK, it, it's challenging. It's I have played very it. Very challenging. Yes, it, it is very and, challenging. And, tight and it's shots. very tight shots. And, and you know what? If If Houdini was made three or four years from now. And it was a tournament game or a Papa game or something like that. It would be a challenge for some of the key players in the industry. But it was our first game out of the, the gate. And unfortunately, it got a, kind of a bad rap because it was so tight and so hard. Um, and then Oktoberfest, a lot of people said, oh, it had some, you know, we they released it. There was a couple shots that weren't working. They fixed the shots, but they really didn't tell the world that the, the shots were fixed. So now all the new games that are coming out from Oktoberfest have the fixed thing. Thank goodness we have Twitch and other things who are showing these games because you can see that. Hot Wheels, um, we kind of leverage, you know, and some people said, and some of the people who love the original Hot Wheels go, I don't get the dinosaur. I don't get the, you know, the, the characters and, and so forth. Well, we really brought in the whole Hot Wheels City, um, you know, TV show that's on a YouTube for kids. And you know what? We've already seen this now transcending to operators and operators are seeing this. You know, I had an operator in uh, Wisconsin contact me and just said, you know, I get it with Hot Wheels. He said, put it on a location. It was in a, like a little family diner. And the kids that were sitting at the table go, Dad, that's my favorite TV show. And sure enough, he saw the father and the kids go over and we were playing the game. And he's like, I get it. I see where you're going for with this. And um, it was a great playing game, too. It's a little bit easier than, uh, you know, Houdini. It's got some good flow. Um, you know, it's 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 challenging. And it's and the artwork on that package was brought together pretty well. It, you know, and, and to talk about licensing, I mean, Jack can tell you a little bit about licensing. And, you know, licensing holds your hand an awful lot, you know. Um, a lot more than you want because, you know, Hot Wheels was probably going to have more of that classic Hot Wheels look. But that wasn't the brand that Mattel wanted. They really wanted to support the new logo, the new Hot Wheels. They didn't want the old style cars. You know, they, we want to bring this in. So, you know, with licensing, you kind of get roped into stuff. But the package came out really good. Now, the marketing on it wasn't so great. All right. We kind of should have pushed it out to everybody, you know, and done that. And we, we kind of took it to a trade show and then everybody took pictures of it and it wasn't really well received. And, you know, there, there's reasons for that. But COVID hit and that also hurt the sales. But we're still selling. We're still selling all three games. 
people are buying Houdini, the, the players who want a challenging game are buying Houdini still. Uh, people who have found out that Oktoberfest is fixed, they're, 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 they're buying that, and Hot Wheels is rolling out the door. So we're really doing well with that. But, uh, you know, there were challenges along the way. And I, I have to say, I love Hot Wheels. Um, I have it in location, and it's a great playing game. So, David, I've got a question for you specifically. Uh, American Pinball's made quite the splash here in the last couple of months between hiring you and then Dennis Nordman and Zofia and now Jack. It seems like American Pinball is saying, hey, we're here to play ball. So can you kind of give us some of the vision of going forward, what's going to happen with American Pinball if we're going to see a different schedule? Because it's been kind of hit or miss with like every 12 months or 18 or 24 months are we going to see a more tight schedule? We're we going to see more machines. What's going to go on now? So let's talk, touch on that. So, you know, um, I'll just tell you that uh, the owner of American Pinball now is Mukesh Vasani. And that's part of the Aimtron Corporation. And uh, at the time, there was uh, Deval Dasani, who was his nephew, who was running American Pinball. Well, back in December, um, Makesh and his advisors got together and they contacted me. And I, and I told the story already a little bit that I was, I had been working for ice and unfortunately it's one of the major manufacturers of arcade games worldwide. And during, because of COVID, it kind of got shut down. You know, I mean, I feel sorry for the guys at ice. I still plug the, you know, the super checks game, uh, all the other games that they have. They even have a whole new arcade version of the games coming out A really nice looking, um, arcade uh, ski ball. You can actually see it at flipping out. Um, Zach Many is now a distributor for Ice uh, Home Arcade, and they have a lot of other games that are going to be absolutely cool. And Zach will be rolling those out on a on a, one of his streams. But um, they basically came to me and said, "Dave, we really want to change the direction that um, that American Pinball has been heading." And, uh, you know, everybody's been like watching American Pinball, including myself for the last four or five years going, okay, guys, let's get this going. Because originally I helped them out with Houdini when they first came out with Houdini from Papa Duke. Um, I run, I help Expo. I run it with Rob Burke. Um, I, at that time, I reached out to American Pinball and said, listen, we're going to get to the back room. We want you to bring the first you know, Houdini there. Let's show it off. They said, we just hired Joe Balser. I said, fine, let's get everybody together. And uh, we gave them a room, you know, that kind of thing. And they, and they got great publicity off that. And then when Oktoberfest came out, Normal reached out to me and I said, let's do it. Let's, let's launch it at Expo. We got Jack, uh, uh, danger to stream it. We got uh, a bunch of things. We got this whole thing. We had a whole launch party right there at Expo and we kind of pushed it out. And then, course hot wheels kind of floundered so when i reached out to them and i said listen hey how are things over there and they said they're they're okay and i said well i'm i'm not doing anything right at the moment they said would you like to come work for us we would really love you to be the director of operations uh deval is going to take a is is leaving the company you're going to answer right to mccash it's going to be mccash is the owner and you're going to be the principal guy over it and we looked at it and we said listen Let's let's bring together this team. And I had a vision. I said, listen, the, the golden years of Williams and Bally were made by some great people. And one of them was Dennis Nordman. And then, you know, you look at Sophia, where she came out with some great mechanical stuff. 
there were some great artists that came out of that time, and Jack was one of them. And I'm like, this is just fitting the vision that I have to make a company look and be respected in the industry of a, as a pinball company. Okay. And the other idea was, it's like, we are bringing in other people to help design games so that we just go from one game every 18 months to two years to two games every year, you know, and we're going to turn the, which basically I said to Mikesh, I said, listen, we can build a game. You guys can build some really good games. What we got to do is put the burners on and start, you know, cooking the games really well. So, you know, Dennis came on board. We started looking at that. And now I'm happy to say that with Dennis and Sophia and Jack and the rest of the team, Josh and Joe and all the guys, we're starting to sit down and we're like, okay, this is going to be great. You know, we're going to start. And trust me, Dennis has already brought some great ideas. We're already cooking on that. Uh, Jack and I and Dennis have already had conversations. And, you know, the, 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 you know, I love there was a, there was a, a guy who did a, podcast one time who worked for Williams and he says when when you get engineering going there's like it's all excited and great ideas are flying off the walls and you know what you just start grabbing it it's like lightning in a bottle and what you want to do is try to hold it and bring all this creativity together and basically say go at it guys let's do this you know let's Jack what do you got for a vision can you share that with Dennis Dennis and Jack got together and they're sharing their vision together we're going to bring in the right sound guy that's going to share that same vision. We're going to go out and going to get the right artist that can bring this all together. And you know what? You let the guys create. Let them create. Let them build some cool, cool mechanisms. Sophia, build me another Miss Multiball or build me some kind of a cool mechanism that's just going to, you know, people are going to love. And, uh, hey, that's what I'm. That's my idea is just sit back, let them create, and let them go at it. And uh, we already have a game coming down the pipeline, and we have another one that's already in development. Jack and Dennis are working on that, and uh, we're bringing the rest of the team on board. So I think it's just going to be a win-win. You guys are going to be excited over American Pinball over the next year or so. Yeah, it sounds like you're uh, getting the band back together, and we're uh, doing a Williams 2.0. That seems like the culture you're trying to do. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say it's fair to say. And in fact, some of the uh, it's funny. I, I was talking to uh, uh, another de- uh, designer, mechanical engineer, and I told him, I said, listen, I'm trying to get the Williams band back together. And they go, are you crazy? There's some sitting over here. There's some sitting over there. There's some guys sitting over there. They're all over the place. It just won't happen. Well, then all of a sudden, Sophia comes walking in. Jack comes walking in. Guess what? You know, we're going to make it fun. You know, we're going to put fun back into pinball, guys. We're going to have some fun making these games. And you know what? If you come to me and you say, hey, listen, I worked for Williams. And I'm just, you know, hey, listen, Williams was great because a good friend, we were talking about this with Jack. And we can go back over this because I want to know more stories about Python. But Python was this other guy who was just energetic. He just brought so much to the Williams. And he just was like, he bounced off all these teams and he gave people ideas. And, and you know, it, the creativity level just ex- expounded. And with that, you know, more people build on that. So, I mean, Python was a good friend. I, I do miss him. Um, I, you know, I missed the phone calls at midnight because he worked with us at ICE on some projects over the years. And, uh, 
you know, Python was was a, a driving force, I would say, in the Williams department during the 80s and a good part of the 90s. And then took that to Capcom for a while there. And uh, I think that, you know, bringing these guys together, letting them create, let them have the passion. They have the passion. They want to do it. I mean, I'm not saying Jack's old and I'm not saying Dennis is old. and I'm not saying Sophia is old, but, you know. Hey guys, would you like to work for a pinball company or would you want to just kind of take an easy job and retire? No, no, we want to work for a pinball company. We have the most fun. We we want to do this. We want to have some fun with these people. And I'm just right. excited to have them. And you guys are looking for, I, I see your press releases. You're like, hey, if you want to be in pinball, uh, send us your resume. Uh, check us out. We're, we're growing. Is it, that's the message I'm getting from you guys. Yes, we are growing. And unlike other companies, you've actually made pinball machines, so you've got that going for you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll put my cuffs on. I've been a little, uh, I, I've been aggressive about a different manufacturer who is uh, all promises. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? And and all fairness, you know, pinball is not an easy business. Okay, nope. and 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 God bless you. You're trying to put it together. I mean, I remember support. I mean, listen. In Expo, I supported wait, I was hit the first foremost. I remember walking in when I was still working with PASAC over Expo and uh, Burke. And I said to him, I said, there's this guy by the name of Jerry Stellenberg who makes this thing called P Rock. Uh, we want to, I want to give him four booths free of charge because he's going to bring in homebrew guys. And then Aaron from uh, Skillshot out in uh, Seattle calls me and I said, hey, uh, he says, can I get a booth? Yeah, we'll get you two booths. And just to create these homebrew guys and the passion to work at this was one of my driving forces back in 2010, 2011 at Expo. Um, you know, it's not an easy job. And from that point, we I helped, you know, <laughs> I helped the kid that made this thing called Predator Pinball. You know, Kevin, I kind of oh, gave him this. Yeah, Skip yeah, B. Yeah, Skip B. Uh, I remember helping him where I could with bringing him at the expo and so forth. I helped, uh, uh, of course, a friend Highway Pinball, Andrew Highway, which I actually own um, one of the uh, prototypes, number four of Jack's game there, Full Throttle. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about that. I'd love to hear a little bit more stories about, you know, his thought on Full Throttle. And, uh, you know, it just, you know, there was there's a lot of passion you know people try to make the machines i give them full credit to doing it and i'd love it when they can pull it off but it's not an easy toy it's not an easy thing to do you know you know give them the credit for trying that's all i have to say mm-hmm. um but uh True. but jack tell us a little bit about highway pinball how did you get over there and in, into uk and working with andrew that's that's got to be an interesting question uh it was another case of uh being contacted out of the blue, I, uh, Andrew was working with uh, another artist, another Williams artist, Tim Watson, uh, at that point. And Tim uh, went on hiatus because he wanted to, uh, I believe, uh, get into teaching and wasn't able to uh, get back and do revisions on what he had started with uh, Full Throttle. So I came in when the project was already underway. Uh, Tim had created a uh, back glass that featured two motorcycles uh, driving away from you, away from the place. You're seeing the back end of the motorcycles and the riders. And uh, 
uh, Andrew just gave me the the wonderful premise of uh, the, this upstart uh, young writer who is a total unknown and nobody expects anything from him on, in the red number 28 motorcycle against this uh, world-renowned leader that wins every race. And uh, uh, again, Andrew asked me to develop the theme a little more and uh, I worked with him on creating this South American character who ultimately you really had to hate. So, so we made uh, him uh, uh, the character that would uh, produce uh, speech calls at you and taunt you and uh, tell you you're never going to win. And that's where the, the three-dimensional model came from on the playing field. I did uh, sketches of the actual character and the 3D artist did a fantastic job. Um, I think his name was, uh, I think the character's name was Valentino in the end. Uh, so I created a backlash concept where the bikes are coming at you and you can see in the, the one character's uh, shield, the finish line is reflected in his visor. Like, so they're just uh, yards from the finish line and the Valentino character is reaching out with his boot to kick him off his bike. So all this is happening at once. Um, there's more that I wanted to develop in the glass, but there was only so much uh, time available to do this. So there was there were some comments which I I take wholeheartedly where the the characters appear to be kind of sketchy which they were at that stage, um, but Andrew said you know this is fine where it's at right now. Um, I'd like you to work on some uh, to adjust some graphics on the playfield which I did. I did the two motorcycle uh, characters on the playfield and there was a female character. I did the cabinet side. So there was a lot of work that I kind of uh, fit into a limited amount of time. Um, but I was excited. It was a great opportunity to uh, kind of come out of uh, the video and redemption world that I had been working in and a chance to, uh, you know, really work on a pinball project. And I was excited and I thought it was pretty neat to work with uh, a designer and a, a company based in Wales. Um, uh, having relatives over there, um, it was kind of... Uh, uh, a nice homecoming experience for me. Now, did you get to work on any of the other game from Highway, the Alien? No, no. There was uh, talk about it. I was uh, asked to come up with some concepts, but you know, at some point, as a uh, freelance artist, you know, you have to uh, decide on a, a contract and so on and so forth. And uh, Andrew uh, hadn't gotten to that point with it, so. Got it. Um, uh, out, of, out of respect for him and the business, you know, that's, that's things were on hold at that point. Um, but another company I came in and out of quite a bit um, is uh, Team Play Incorporated, and they're based here in uh, Elk Grove Village in Illinois. That's Ken Fedesna's and, place, right? Uh, Ken Fedesna, who was my former boss at Midway for many, many years and a great guy. And uh, their focus was primarily redemption games. So types of games that you would see at Dave and Buster's, Chuck E. Cheese, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and so I got to work on some concepts with them that were actually pretty interesting and some that actually touched on the pinball world as well. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, you, you, it, which is kind of fun, which I laugh. Um, there was a game that Team Play brought together and I had seen it. It was called Fishbowl Frenzy. 
And it's yeah. interesting because I, I talked to Ken at, um, at IAPA and I saw Fishbowl Frenzy and we were talking and I said, so how did you lure John Yowsey out of retirement to do the, the artwork for Fishbowl Frenzy? And he looked at me, he goes, how did you know that's John Yowsey's artwork? And I said, listen, John has a style. Everybody's got a style. I mean, you know, Jack's got a style too. And, and yeah. I said, not only that, the, 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 you, you basically got uh, Williams coils up there dropping the ball. I mean, the, the whole thing has got like, you know, well, I think it was stern coils, but anyway, they had pinball coils and, you know, and, and Ken's like, you know, you're, you know, your business, Mr. Fix, I will tell you that much. And then <laughs> they came out with another game, which was more pinball like, and you worked on that one, Jack, a little bit more that was uh, what was that one with the little, little pinball tables? Yeah. Spins Ahoy. There you go. Spins Ahoy. And uh, originally, it was a licensed a license that we were working on. And sometimes, um, as you know, when you're working on a license and there you have financial investors, uh, it can go south in the middle of the project. And uh, that's what happened with the original concept. But we still had this great game that had four individual kiosks, uh, and basically, you would. It was a board game, basically, and little characters would move around the board game, and that was your one credit. You put in your credit, and you'd see where your character would end up on the board, and that would tell you how many uh, credits you you won. Um, and it had some nice novel features as well. And we 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 decided that the license wasn't going to happen, but we were we still wanted to go ahead because the mechanic worked. It was great. And then again, because of Ken Fedesna and his uh, great leadership and experience in as a leader at uh, Williams Valley Midway, Ken was the one who came up with the idea of, okay, we've got the spinner, but how about we make a little mini pinball play field? Technically, it's a bagatelle because there's no flipper. So you just pull the plunger and the mini uh, pinball drops down between slots and it tells you Again, the same thing tells you where your how many spaces your character moves on the board, and I just love this idea of the mini uh, pinball playfield, and uh, we applied that. Spins Ahoy uh, was a sort of a cartoony uh, pirate theme, and the characters were really uh, well defined and uh, wonderful, unique characters, and we named one of them Captain Captain Ken in honor of Ken Fedesna. Um, and uh, it turned out to be the highest earning game ever at a Chuck E. Cheese location. Uh, and it was a four, because it was a four player, four players independent. And, and this was at Chuck E. Cheese headquarters, which was no small feat. So uh, they saw firsthand how well it did. Um, I can't say anything about distribution or decisions after the fact, but it did, it did reach that milestone, and uh, I'm proud to, you know, at least illustrate it uh, when I was asked, uh, you know, uh, to post some images. Uh, Spins Ahoy, uh, I'm really fond of it, and uh, had a lot, of, uh, a lot of pinball people involved in that as well. Yeah, it, it basically looks a little bit like a, well, kind of like a bingo machine, actually. I'm kind of looking yes. at Yes, sure. And imagine four of those side by side, each, you know, at a slight angle to the screen. And uh, it was really fun and it really drew people in. You know, you don't see that very often. Um, you know, everybody's used the joysticks, gun, you know, gun games, et cetera. 
but this it was really special. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. So after that, you kind of went to uh, you did some work on the Star Wars for Steve Ritchie and and Stern, and again you did your photo realism kind of. Are you want to talk about a little about that? Uh, I know the guys. Yeah, yeah, correct. There was again another case where uh, Greg Freres reached out to me to ask if I could uh, contract some art, and uh, the Star Wars license, without getting into too much detail, you know, uh, required a lot of scrutiny by the licensor, mm -hmm. and uh, I think there were a lot of uh, changes and revisions that uh, affected the schedule. So Greg had to call in. Uh, several people to help out to to meet the milestones that they had set and uh, it was a case where I had to match an existing artist's style and method uh, which I did so it looks very painterly uh, and that was the intention and it was all done on computer but it was but it was intended to you know appear to be more hand-drawn uh, a painting illustration of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader on the uh, the back box sides and the coin box front and uh, some other work that I did. But those are the, I, I think they appeared on the pro version of the Star Wars uh, cabinet. And uh, I was one of several artists, but we all kind we all had to pitch in and, you know, try and have a, a unified style. Uh, so the, the final package looked seamless for the, for the consumer, which it did. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. We've talked about that before is how um, in many ways uh, we as casual fans don't understand the licensing constraints and how yeah. uh, how really the owner of the license really guides the visual presentation of their product because that's their product. They want to know how it's going out and, and it doesn't matter if you make the coolest thing in the world if it doesn't follow whatever their style guide is or what their agreed upon um, presentation for the theme is, it, it's not going to fly. Yes, very true. Very true. And the metaphor I've used a couple times, and I'm not going to name specific games, but you know, you, you go into it hoping they give you the box of 128 crayons and they give you the box of 12 mm -hmm. and, and make something with this. And uh, you know, as a creative person, then that's what you do. And and we can't always come out and, you know, point to that, but uh, you do the best you can in, in every situation. I, I told Jack when he started working here, I says, uh, you hit the big box of crayons, my friend. Uh, you can you don't have to worry about work playing with the kitty pack from uh, any any restaurant where you only get four colors or six or eight colors. Uh, you can have all 64, uh, use them sparingly, and uh, you go for it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I do have to, I, I, I would like to just call out specifically, I can't uh, thank um, and show my appreciation enough for uh, uh, the leadership at Stern with uh, Greg Ferreris and George Gomez. Uh, those guys are amazing. Uh, they are pros. They're at the top of their game. And, uh, you know, in the times I have, I've had to work with them, I've been truly grateful and uh, appreciative for their guidance and, uh, um, you know, how they've done things, you know, over the years. So good guys. Yes, very good guys. All right, before we wrap this up, David Fix was nice enough to hook us up with a Houdini Translite, and we're going to give this away to you, our audience. 
what we're going to do is kind of what we've done in the past. We're going to make a post. Uh, it's going to be of this episode. Make sure you comment, you like, and if you share. The share will get you extra entries. And then here in two weeks, we will toss all the entries into a hat, stir it all up, and announce a winner. And we'll work with you in getting that Houdini translate. Yeah, that the and the Houdini art style is certainly very fun to see. Yeah, it was uh, it was done very well. The Houdini artwork. Um, same artist did Houdini did uh, um, Hot Wheels too. So I'm happy to give one away to you, any of your listeners out there. It'd be it would be really great. We want to thank uh, David Fix and Jack Hager uh, from American Pinball. We really appreciate them coming on. And it's always fun hearing about uh, a, a pinball company that's on the rise. Uh, David, if someone wants to send their resume to you and contact you, how do they do that? Uh, very easy. David, period, fix at AmericanPinball.com. And you can even call the office um, or and uh, talk or send an inf- uh, to info at AmericanPinball.com. You can do that, too. Thanks, David. If you want to get a hold of Loser Kid Pinball Podcast, you can get a hold of us the traditional way at loserkidpinballpodcast at gmail.com, or we prefer Facebook, so if you hit us up, I am Josh Roop, that is Scott Larson, you can hit us up at Loser Kid Pinball Podcast page, everything, all of our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is at Loser Kid Pinball, we still got some hats and some beanies, so if you want to hit us up for that, uh, there's a gentleman that did, did reach out, but I'll make sure I get you taken care of, my good sir, and... I think that wraps it up pretty much for us now. Scott, is there anything, any other last thoughts you have for us? Well, when it's time for you guys to announce, we'd love to invite you guys back and we can uh, do a reveal and talk about it. And uh, certainly uh, more pinball is good pinball. And uh, it's always good to have more seats at the table, as we always say. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. We really do appreciate it. Sit down.